Well, good morning, Southeastern. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Book of Hebrews, chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I almost didn't make it this morning. Uh, and so let me tell you why. I uh, have an old pickup truck uh, that my wife reminds me regularly is a piece of junk. And she told me, whatever I did, don't drive that truck uh, to work tomorrow because, you know, it may break down or something like that. Fortunately, in the Lord's provision, she was gone this morning. And so I drove the truck against her counsel and advice and sure enough, broke down on the way this morning. So I called Dr. Ecker uh, because I knew he wouldn't have anything to do. And... (laughs) Dr. Ecker came and we pushed that truck in the snow, barefooted, uphill, about three quarters of a mile to get it off of the road. And uh, so I'm grateful that Dr. Ecker came and did that and served. Uh, But it's a reminder, if I were, you know, if I were a really spiritual person, like uber spiritual, I would say that the devil was trying to prevent me from preaching this sermon today. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe just the devil didn't want you to hear it. But whether or not that's the case, you probably ought to stay awake and listen because you never know. It it really may be something that the devil was trying to keep you from hearing. So pay attention this morning and listen just in case. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I'll read aloud. You could read silently where where you are. What is the very Word of God? For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's an amazing salvation that we have. The salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about, but to someone, but someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a little while, a short time. And you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus. (laughs) We do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, and we see him crowned with glory and honor because he has suffered death. From bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father, This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, you, brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to the brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust him. And again, here I am with the children that God has given to me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things 
so that through his death he might destroy the one who is holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were once held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, those who have faith. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who also are tempted. What a great passage of Scripture. What a great salvation the book of Hebrews is pointing us toward. I'm reminded in the book of Revelation when the Apostle John is carried up to the highest heaven that he walks into the throne room and he sees some scrolls that are there and they're sealed up. And only someone who is worthy of breaking the seals and opening up those scrolls actually can do that. And he asks the question rhetorically, is there anyone who is worthy? Is there anyone who is capable, anyone who has the worth and the ability to break the seals on these scrolls and to open them up so that life can be extended to human beings, those whom God has made to have life, but who nonetheless are now suffering from death? Is anyone worthy of bringing life to people? And the answer is yes. There's only one who is worthy, and the one who is worthy is the one who is spoken of in this passage here, Jesus Christ, the Lord the one whom we come together every time we gather as believers to exalt and to worship, the one whom we come to submit ourselves to, to hear his voice and to have his authority mediated to us through the scriptures so that we can obey him and know him and love him and be loved by him and ultimately then to share him, to participate in the great work which he is doing, this great salvation. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews starts out in this passage where he says that we should pay attention to what we have heard. Now, he describes what we've heard a little more fully in the previous chapter. In chapter 1, he said that the, the prophets have spoken to us the Word of God, and then the Son of God has come to fulfill this spoken Word of God. That what we have written down in the text of Scripture, what we have preached to us, is a proclamation of, a description of the one who is the living Word of God, Jesus Himself. And He says we need to pay close attention and listen to this because the great salvation which the Word of God has brought to us is so significant that if we neglect it, we lose out on more than we could ever imagine. Now you think, well, why would we neglect the Word of God? Why would we neglect this salvation? Why would we neglect what God has said to us and done for us? And it's because remembering is a whole lot harder than forgetting. Forgetting is simple. It's really easy. All you have to do is just exist, and you forget things all the time. It's a whole lot harder to remember what your professor taught you or what your parents told you or what your wife told you before you left this morning. It's a whole lot easier to forget that than it is to remember it. I remember about 150 years ago when I was learning Greek, where you sit right now, and I was having the hardest time learning Greek. And so my roommate and I had to come up with some ways to try to remember these things, right? So repetition is a big way to remember, and also it's coming up with other like little jingles. We came up with little songs that we would sing to remember the Greek articles. And still to this day, I can sing those. In fact, I was on the way this morning, I was singing them until I, until I broke down, and then all the singing out the window. But forgetting is very, very easy. Remembering is hard. It's hard to keep in mind even things that are very important to us. 
You might forget birthdays, you might forget anniversaries, you might forget important uh, things that have happened in your own life. You may forget the people that really are important to you. It becomes easy in the busyness of our lives to forget. The same thing is true when it comes to the gospel. It's harder to remember the good things of God, harder to remember the gospel than it is to forget the gospel. And we get so busy in our lives, there's so many things that we have to do. As students, you have to study and you have to make sure that you eat three meals a day or roughly three meals a day, that you get to the right place at the right time and that you get your jobs done and that there are so many other things that you have to keep in mind. It's easy to forget. And churches are the same way. And churches are incredibly busy places. And sometimes we get so busy that we fail to remember And so the author here says to us that we have to keep in mind, we have to remember the things that we have heard so that we don't drift away. And he compares that with another covenant. He he compares this with the covenant that God gave to Israel at Sinai. And he says that that, in that covenant, there are laws that were given through these messengers. They were legally binding. The people had to follow these rules. No eating shrimp, no 50-50 cotton poly blend. And they had to remember all of the things that they could and they could not do. Think about Leviticus, and you read that for just a bit, and you think, I have to remember all of this? And yes, you had to remember it, and all of the laws count. And you had to keep up with all of those laws. How much more important is it then for you and for me who are heirs of the new covenant? who participate not in the Sinai covenant, but in the new covenant in the life and death and blood of Jesus Christ, that we must remember these things. The call which God has placed on our lives is a call to remember, to remember the great salvation, His great work. And so we have to remind ourselves of it constantly. If we're going to remember, repetition has to be a big part of what we do. We have to come up with ways for us to repeat over and over again this great story of the gospel. But it's not just repetition. We need to come up with other ways, and one of the best ways to do that is with songs. Every time you hear a song that you have heard before, the words immediately come back. I could be walking through the grocery store, and a song from Van Halen from 1984 comes in, and kind of the instrumental version, and every word of every song comes to my mind as that's happening. For good or for ill, it happens. In the church, we have songs that we sing that remind us over and over of the truth of the gospel. Never neglect the songs of the gospel. Listen to them and hear them and remember them and teach them to people. When you were young, your parents taught you little songs so that you would remember things, not just so that you would sing. Singing is not the great value. It's the one whom we're singing about that is the value for us. And in the church, we glorify and exalt Jesus Christ both with what we say and with what we sing. For us to remember, we have to repeat over and over the gospel, and we have to sing the gospel over and over. It's not enough to just have little Christian ditties. We need songs that remind us of the greatness of the gospel, that we really do adore this great and marvelous Jesus. And we don't forget those things. Those of you who will be pastors one day, I hate to bust your bubble, but people aren't going to be driving around in their cars remembering the things that you said from the week before. They'll be shaped by them. When people gather together in the corporate worship of God, the Word of God changes their lives and transforms them without them even knowing that that's what's happening. It's what the Word of God does. It never returns void, but they'll remember the songs that you sing. And they'll sing them at stoplights, and they'll find themselves embarrassed when people are looking around and they're singing praise to the Lord, but they'll not be shouting out quotes from your sermons. And so we need sermons and we need songs. 
as we'll see in this passage here. At the very outset of this passage, he reminds us that this great salvation is the work of God. And just as a way to demonstrate the foundation of this, he tells us, beginning in verses 3 and 4 this, where he gives us the doctrine of the Trinity. If you want to understand where the Christian doctrine of the Trinity comes from, it's not from, as Harnack said, the Hellenization of Christianity. It's not that over the 300 plus years after the writing of the New Testament that people sat around and said, we need to come up with some cool doctrine and the the Hellenized world around them affected the way that they began to think about God and they began to move from a Hebraic form to a Hellenistic form of thinking about God. No, the doctrine of the Trinity is just an exposition of what is presented to us in the Bible right here. If you are a part of a church, you've ever uh, understood or learned of the Apostles' Creed or the Nice Creed or the Athanasian Creed, you know right here that we confess one God who is the Father, the one Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who is confessed right here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This salvation, he says, had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord Jesus Christ, who was confirmed to us by all who heard it. And the same time, God, the Father, also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, as clear and concise as the Nicene Council some 300 years later put it. It's presented to us here in a way that helps us to understand that the God who is at work in our salvation is the same God who is eternally Father and Son and Spirit that we proclaim in our baptism. And here he's working to draw us into right relationship with himself. It's vitally important for us to know that the salvation which God brings to us is not simply salvation from some harm that might would come our way, but a salvation to right relationship with him. He draws us into the very union which he is as Father and Son and Spirit. By the Lord Jesus Christ being God incarnate, he's able to draw us into a reconciled relationship with him. What's fascinating here in verse 3 is that he tells us that the Lord taught this message. Now, what message is it that the Lord teaches? Where is it that we find Jesus teaching the gospel? Luke 24, for example, at the very end of his time here, after having been raised up from the dead, he's sharing with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and the Bible tells us that he goes back to the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, and he explains himself from them. Look, if you really want to understand Jesus, read the Old Testament. Study what Moses had to say. Moses writes about Jesus, and hear the prophets, because the prophets speak about Jesus, and look into the narratives of the writings because they're intended to explicate for you Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and he explains himself and here's what he says that the Old Testament is about. So if you ever wonder what are all of these books, 39 of them in English about, it is this Jesus says that he, Jesus the Christ, would suffer and die and be raised from the dead on the third day and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be preached to all nations beginning in Jerusalem, when the promise, the Holy Spirit, came on those disciples. It's what the gospel in the Old Testament promised, and it's what the gospel in the New Testament fulfills. What Jesus comes to do is to bring about the fulfillment of that message, and it's that salvation which he preaches, and which the apostles were told, those who heard it from him, passed along to the rest of us. The writings of the New Testament present to us the salvation which Jesus preached, which was himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament message. 
God then, the Father, testifies by signs and wonders. We read all through the book of Acts, the signs and wonders that are the witness to the testimony which the apostles are given, helping us to recognize, yes, this apostolic message is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Whenever we read the New Testament, we are reading the gospel as testified to by God's own work in these signs and wonders and various miracles. And he does this by means of the Spirit, the Spirit whom we remind ourselves comes and dwells within us. The same Spirit that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, by whom these signs and wonders and the distribution of these miracles took place, dwells in you. And when you and I come together in the power of the Spirit, He is present with us. And it is this salvation which we must not forget the same one which Jesus preached about himself and which the Spirit has made effectual in our lives. Don't forget, because there's great harm in neglecting this salvation. Churches that neglect this salvation and turn themselves over to whatever other things churches might do, good things as opposed to great things, stand in the way of the gospel's work in our lives and through our lives to the nations and to the world. And the writer of Hebrews gives us this salvation. Four quick things that he tells us about this, about this salvation in the remainder of this passage. He says that when uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8, talks to us about the Son of Man, that it's talking to us about Jesus. The next time you read Psalm 8, read it in light of what's said here in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is the one who is the subject. He's the man who is being spoken of, the son of man who is being spoken of in Psalm chapter 8. And what is the message about him? And it's this, that he is crowned with glory and honor. You see, the, the first point that Hebrews wants us to understand about our salvation is that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord is not just that he is like the boss of my life. It means that he is the king. He has a certain kind of authority and a certain kind of kingship. Deuteronomy 17 presents to us the king that Jesus is. It promises at the end of that passage in 16, 17, 18, and 19, there is the, the famous understanding of the priest and the prophet and the king who is promised whom Jesus fulfills. And the king of Deuteronomy 17 is not like the king of the nations around the people of Israel or around us. Sometimes we hear authority and we think of being the boss. We think of being in charge, telling people what to do. And if we aren't careful, we think that that's the kind of king that Jesus is, that he just wants to show up and boss us around and be a tyrant and show us how much better he is than the rest of us. But it's not that kind of king. The kind of king in Deuteronomy 17 that Jesus is, is the one who opens up the scriptures to us. And by opening up the Scriptures to us, opens our eyes to hear them and to see them. In other words, Jesus is the wisdom of God that's presented to us. The truth about how we might would live is presented to us by Jesus. As our King, He looks over and cares for us by giving to us His own wisdom, by presenting to us the kind of life that He has designed us to live and the way in which we might live it. He's a king who guides and who leads, who cares for, who provides for and preserves his people. It's this kind of king. The glory and the honor with which he is crowned is a glory and honor that is due only to him. And we recognize that he is this great king, and so we submit ourselves to his wisdom and his way. 
He becomes the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our churches because one day He will be the Lord of everything in the earth. One day everything will be subject to Him, even though the writer says it doesn't look like it today. You look around the world and, man, things are falling apart. You may look in your own life and see that things are falling apart. Your family may be falling apart. Your career may be falling apart. Your time in school may be falling apart. And you think, if Jesus is Lord, why didn't it all work out? Because there is a day coming when that will be the case. And until then, you and I hold fast to the salvation which we have in Jesus that promises to us that one day this king whom we have really will exercise his kingship in every area, in every corner of the universe. But you and I have the privilege of submitting to him now. You and I have the joy of having Jesus as our king and submitting to his rule and his reign and his authority in our lives. We exalt Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. Not because of what he might do for us, but because of what he has done for us. The salvation which he has given to us gives us the privilege of recognizing Jesus as Lord, Jesus as king. Submit yourself to his lordship. Hear his voice and obey it, just like the sheep do of the good shepherd. And when you hear his voice and you obey it, when you know his wisdom, when he is the Lord and the king of your life, you share in the life that is his, which is the next part of this. It's not just that Jesus is Lord, but we see in the next passage that, beginning in verse 10, that he brings many sons and daughters into this glory. You see, if you trust in Jesus, it's not just that He becomes your Lord and He is exalted with glory, but now He brings you into His glory, into His very presence, knowing the very presence of Jesus. I love this in the Great Commission. Jesus says that you're going to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I have commanded to you, and I will be with you. I will be with you. I love how Jesus says when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. You see, glory is not just something which we will know in the future. You and I know the glory of God now. When we gather together as the people of God, we share in His very presence. We know His glory. In our own acts of worship, as we exalt Him, we participate in His glory What a great delight to know that the one who has come from glory down to where we are is here to exalt him, to be exalted, and then to draw us into his own glory, to lead many sons and daughters to glory. That's you and that's me that are drawn into and brought into his glory, his very presence. We see next then that this great work of Jesus, what is accomplished in Him is not just that He is exalted as Lord and that He brings us into His own glory, but we see that He is made complete or perfect through His own sufferings. This is the sanctification which He affects in Himself and and promises to us, promises to affect in us. Notice what He says here. That the captain of our salvation, the pioneer, the leader, the one, the first one walking into this salvation is completed through his sufferings, is brought to perfection. And what is this perfection that he tells us in verse 11? To be sanctified. You see, what the Son of God does in becoming incarnate is to take up our fallen humanity and to sanctify it. 
We read about, we confess in our, the Baptist faith and message, for example, that every human being has a nature which is inclined towards sin in an environment which is inclined to sin. And it is into that environment that the Son of God comes to take up that nature which is inclined to sin and fix it. And so you and I, every one of us, we're born with a nature inclined to sin and an environment inclined to sin, and God was not afraid to step into it. Sometimes we have this picture of God that He has to be protected from the, the inclination to sin and be protected from an environment to sin, but it's just the opposite. He walks right into the middle of it for the purpose of redeeming those who are in it. What kind of God would it be and what kind of salvation would he bring if he stayed off safe on top of the mountain while you and I were being drowned in the waters of this world? But he steps into the midst of them so that we might be saved. What he promises to us then is this sanctification. It's what he brings to us is, is to rectify the problem which we have. It's not just that you and I are separated from God and God decides to not be mad at you anymore. He actually fixes the problems that you have. The sin which you struggle with, He has come to take on, to put onto His own shoulders and to crucify on the cross that you too might be sanctified. Jesus offers to us this great salvation in which there is sanctification, being made holy before a holy God. And it's not our sanctification, it is His which He gives to us. He comes and He sanctifies His own flesh, and then He says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Receive this, this sanctified humanity. You might have this through being reconciled to me. In union with Jesus, we have this sanctification. And the next He tells us, it's not just sanctification we have, it's sonship that we have as well. Sonship. Now, whose sonship is it? It is His own you see, the reason it's important that for Christians we have the doctrine of the Trinity is because with no, without a Trinity, there is no salvation. Without a Trinity, you can't be an Arian, you can't be a Jehovah's Witnesses, a Witness, you can't hold to a doctrine of God that is not Trinitarian and have our gospel. Our gospel is predicated on the fact that the Father and the Son are eternally united to one another in love, and that salvation is, get this, salvation is our having the same love that the eternal Son has. The love which the Father has for the Son, get this, when you and I are united to Christ, we have that same love. He doesn't love us with a lesser love. I mean, what kind of love would that be? Where God says, the, where the Father says to the Son, I love you all the way, to the uttermost, but these people, I love them most of the way. But when we have a picture of Jesus in which he's just this, this kind of lower divine being, that somehow he is not in fullness deity, in fullness God, then the sonship which you and I have is just a weak and a tepid sonship. Instead, the sonship we share in in this salvation is the very sonship which Jesus himself shares. But it's not ours by nature. We're not made into God. We're not made into the Son of God. It is by, the Bible tells us, adoption. It's, a, it's an alien sonship which we receive. And that's important to remember. It's not that, that God just comes along and he makes you another little Jesus. It is that in Jesus Christ, you share in the eternal sonship which he has of the Father. By adoption, you share in that love which the Father has for the Son. And now that becomes yours. 
Jesus offers to you in this salvation sonship. He sings about this, or speaks about this rather, in the next passage. This wonderful passage of Scripture that gives us the basis of what we do in church on Sundays, where he says this, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. This is Jesus extending to us that sonship which belongs to him. He has made you brothers and sisters. You didn't become brothers and sisters by work you did. It's work which he has done in salvation. And now he proclaims the name of God. His eternal name, which he has. Yahweh, this great and wonderful Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is proclaimed. This is what we do in our sermons. We proclaim Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name which is above every other name. And he says, and then I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. It's what we do in church. I had a friend of mine say not too long ago, he said, I'm just tired of church being like song and sermon. We need need to be more robust than that. And I'm like, you mean better than Jesus' service? We're going to have our worship service better than what Jesus does. He does two things, song and sermon. It's what you do and everything else fits within that particular model. We proclaim his name. We sing hymns. And listen, this is the worship which Jesus offers on your behalf. You see, what you and I have as a priest, a high priest, to make us priests before God. I love this. In the book of Revelation, we're reminded that every one of us as Christians are priests and kings, and that Jesus is the priest of priests and the king of kings. (laughs) That in the kingdom of God, everybody's a king. There's not like kings and then there's the subjects. There's kings and there's the king of those kings. And there are priests and then there's the high priest. And Jesus offers worship on your behalf. What a great salvation. To know that the Son of God takes up your humanity and He goes before God acting rightly as a human being before God in your place because you won't. Like human beings are idolaters, man. We don't want to worship God. And so Jesus says, give me your humanity and I will fix it so that your humanity not just is sanctified and is not just participating in sonship, but now is serving in worship. And so Jesus takes your humanity and he worships God with it, not only so that you and I might learn how to worship, but so you and I might be worshipers. It's what it means to be a Christian, to no longer be idolaters, but to be worshipers of God. And in all of this, we're told that because we share in this sonship with him, He shares in what is ours. That He takes on our flesh and blood, we're told, that He might subject it to death and raise it from the dead. The great truth of this salvation we have in Jesus has a capstone to it. It is this. We have life. Life. It's one thing to be a worshiper of God. It's another thing to share in a sanctified humanity. It's yet even another thing to share in the sonship which the Son has, the eternal Son has with the Father. But it's yet another thing to have life. And not life in the things of this world. Not this kind of life, but eternal life. 
And eternal life is not just the length of life. We sometimes think that it is, that it just means, well, I'm just going to keep going on, not ever die. But it's not the extent of our life or the length of our life that makes it eternal. It is the kind of life which we have, that God shares with us his own very life. This passage in Hebrews 2 takes us back, intentionally takes us back, and by design, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we're told that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and they're creating everything that exists, as he reminds us us here, for himself and by himself, that he creates a man, forms the man from the dust of the earth, and then he breathes the breath of life into him. When the Gospel of John goes back and reflects on that passage, He tells us in chapter 1 this, that that life that you read about that was breathed into Adam is the Son, this one here, the one who has come to us to reconcile us to God. Jesus himself is God at work reconciling you to himself. Jesus is not some intermediary figure where God is on one side of of the divide and you're on the other side of the divide and Jesus comes in and he placates God and he offers something to you. Instead, Jesus Christ is the place where what it means to be God and what it means to be human come together for us and our salvation. That he might give to us his wisdom. He might give to us his lordship as he reigns over us, as he is our king, the king of our lives and the king of our churches, to give to us sanctification, to make us holy, to make us right, atone for our sins and then free us from them, and that he might give us sonship so that we can be worshipers of God. But finally and fully, he gives us life, his own life, Why would we want to neglect so great a salvation? What what danger is there in neglecting that salvation? To miss out on Jesus as our Lord, to miss out on Jesus as our life. And we trust in Him and follow Him and believe in Him. He works not just in the past and not just in the future, but He works in the moment where you and I come before Him. Two or three gathered in his name to exalt and to lift him up and to be transformed by his good and great and gracious work. Jesus really is Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning we are delighted to read in this passage that there is hope for us. And my prayer is that for those of us who have neglected this or are neglecting this great salvation, that this passage today might turn our attention back to these wonderful truths of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to yourself. For those who are struggling with sin, let them remember that there is a high priest who stands for them and on their behalf, that they too, having suffered, might find hope and relief. That those who are struggling with sonship, loneliness, identity, that they might find hope in the sonship which you have extended to them. For those who are facing the shadow of death, 
who are facing the loss of life, that they might even now in this moment be reminded of what you have given to them. Be good to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.